You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A new class action lawsuit just filed against the state alleges poor conditions in incarceration facilities during the pandemic. It is asking a judge to appoint an expert to assess each facility and to create a plan for inmate services. Eric Seitz is one of the attorneys on the case. He gave us the details this morning. I've been involved in COVID concerns about the prisons since March of 2020. At that point in time, there was litigation in the Hawaii Supreme Court regarding the possible release of as many inmates as possible because of concerns about potential outbreaks of COVID in the prisons. There had not been any at that time. I intervened in that case, was allowed to intervene, and represented a group of public health experts from the mainland, primarily one here. Uh, and we offered to bring to the prison system the expertise of these people and warned them that if they did not immediately take comprehensive measures, that the prisons would be uh, just a, a terrible place uh, once the, uh, the virus got a foothold there. Uh, and we presented detailed affidavits and declarations about exactly how uh, that would unfold. Well, they took our pleading, they paid no attention to us, and then in August at Oahu Community Correctional Facility, there were first 100 and then several hundred and then nearly 1,000 people who got COVID, precisely as my experts had predicted. And at that point, we filed our first lawsuit. And we filed it in federal court, and we entered into a sort of uh, informal agreement with the uh, state through the uh, attorney general's office that we would not proceed with the lawsuit at that time to interfere and to draw resources away from them trying to combat the pandemic in the prisons, as long as they could give us assurances that they were bringing in public health experts who were advising them and who were basically calling the shots. And they did that. And then they also got rid of the, the head of the Department of Public Safety, who was atrocious and uh, who had ignored all of the warnings and all of the advice that had been given to him. So things went along for a while, and we did not pursue our lawsuit aggressively, although it was on file in federal court. And then eventually we dismissed it because we decided that there were going to be procedural issues in federal court and we recently refiled it in state court here. And it is a class action in behalf of all inmates in Hawaii institutions, including Hawaii inmates on the mainland. Well, since that all began, we have seen one institution after another blow up. First, Saguaro in Arizona, then Halava here, uh, Waiava facility here, and then the most recent one, recent two, were at Maui and now at Hilo. And the same kinds of problems have occurred because of the lack of uh, preparation, the lack of planning, and the lack of facilities and overcrowding. The situation in Hilo is so bad that I would compare it to a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II. It is just horrendous from the pictures and the accounts that we've seen. So yesterday we filed a motion for a temporary restraining order in the state court action asking a judge to intervene and asking the judge to appoint somebody to go into the prison and assess the situation, who is an expert, and to provide immediate plans uh, for services to the inmates and the staff there because they are desperate. The state's response to that was to remove the case back to federal court. In other words, they do not want to have a substantive discussion about what's going on. They want to ignore the needs of these people and so they basically delayed. We were supposed to meet with the state judge at 9 o'clock this morning. They delayed that by filing papers to bring the case back to federal court. We will pursue the matter now in federal court with the judge who's recently gotten that case, but it's going to take an extra day or two for us to be able to get in there to do that. That was Honolulu attorney Eric Seitz, who represents Hawaii inmates in a class action lawsuit alleging unsafe conditions in our prisons and jailhouses. The lawsuit comes on the heels of an outbreak of COVID-19 at the Hawaii Community Correctional Center, the third facility in the state to see a COVID cluster. In a statement, Tony Schwartz, spokesperson for the P Department of Public Safety, said the department has been advised not to comment on possible pending legal matters. The attorney general's office will be filing a response on behalf of PSD in court as appropriate, end quote. 
The conversation Savannah Harriman Pope caught up with Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth on Monday about how HCCC prepared for a second wave of COVID-19 with the pandemic and how they're handling it now. Here's Mayor Roth. In, on the prevention side, there was a lot of meetings that I personally, as a prosecutor, um, participated in. And now as the mayor, we're looking at those kinds of things as well. Um, so, you know, for an example, one of the things that we're looking at is uh, creating a system at the jail where um, they have better medical treatment, uh, kind of like a mass unit is, is something that, you know, we're talking to people as recently as this morning, I was talking to the governor, um, Department of Health, um, National Guard, and some other people about, you know, making sure that we have the resources involved to um, not only respond, but now that we're responding, uh, how do we do that? Also, how do we prevent? I mean, we're, we're talking a lot of prevention stuff, um, not just for the jail, but for our county and state in general. One prevention measure implemented during the pandemic was an early release program. It was put in place in August of 2020 by the Supreme Court amid an outbreak of COVID-19 at the Oahu Community Correctional Center. This program ended this year in April. In his previous role as the Hawaii County Prosecutor, Mitch Roth repeatedly expressed concerns about early release. Last year, around this time, you said Absolutely. that you said that the early release program may, in fact, be more dangerous than this type of outbreak or the consequence of a COVID cluster on our healthcare system. In your new position as our mayor. Do you still hold that opinion? I do, and I think it's been proven out. You know, this last year, we've seen uh, a lot of things happening with crime going up. Um, we've seen people getting injured. We've seen, you know, some pretty horrific cases that have happened. Um, worse yet, we've seen a lot of community members being in fear. At this stage, mind you, I don't think we've had anybody inside of our Hawaii Community Correctional Facility uh, Center um, who's died of COVID. We have had people who have been victimized by crime and some other things. Now, as the mayor, I, I sit in a different role. I, I see the cl cluster as something very serious, but I'm, I'm looking at on a balancing test of what we know now, um, what we have in place now, and our ability to respond to this. You know, at this time, it's pointing out that it is a lesser of two evils. In its May report, Public Safety stated that HCCC houses 348 inmates. Its design capacity is 206. In response to the class action lawsuit, the mayor's office said in a statement today that, quote, it is not the business of the county to comment on legal matters in which we are not directly involved. I would encourage Mayor Roth to look at this from a bigger point of view. That's Dan Mistak of Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services. His organization works in expanding access to health care for individuals while they are incarcerated and as they are leaving the system. Unfortunately, um, the state of Hawaii, the, the policymakers and the, and the leaders in the state did not really take seriously what was very clearly going to ha be happening here. And we saw this happen when OCCC had their big outbreak. We saw it when Maui had their big outbreak. And we are seeing it right now as uh, Hawaii uh, Island is having their big outbreak at HCCC. And so, of course, as soon as it pops up in the jail, it spreads like wildfire, which is what we've seen now in three different jails across the, um, across the islands. There's quite a few different ways early release could work, right? So, of course, there was this, the state Supreme Court order that allowed for people who had um, certain petty, petty misdemeanors to be able to be released early. And then there, of course, was the work that public defenders were doing along with prosecutors to just try and help people secure an early release and moving through that arraignment process um, much more quickly. So unfortunately, the Supreme Court order, um, it wasn't really all that wide ranging. So for people who had petty misdemeanors, it wasn't a whole lot of people who were released. Um, the providers in the community have tried real hard to come together and figure out how they could put together a system that would safely decarcerate. Um, but unfortunately, the communication challenges between DPS and community providers has, has meant that things were still really ad hoc uh, and, and weren't able to be 
carried out in a way that made sure that some of the most vulnerable folks were able to find a place on the other side of this. So the Supreme Court mandate for the early release program ended on April 15th, which was a month and a half, just a month and a half shy of the current outbreak that we're seeing in HCCC, HCCC. Early release is only one component of precautions that different institutions have taken or have considered taking in order to prevent just what we're seeing now. Do you think that having that mandate in place to this day or having a more uh, full-throated early release program would have impacted this type of situation or lessened the consequence that we're seeing now? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, all of the efforts that we have at mitigation for people who are incarcerated, it's, you know, separation from one another, which you can only do something like that in the population. If the uh, the census inside the jail is, is small enough for people to be separated, if people are actually given access to soap and to masks. And I know over on Maui, of course, they um, were given a whole bunch of masks in order to try and stop the, stop the spread there. Um, but those masks weren't then handed out to people who were detained there because they um, had the little metal bars in the nose and they didn't want to allow those to be given out to everybody. So yes, the early release program is just one component of it. But, but what we're really suffering from is the fact that the, the, our, um, we don't have a robust set of diversion programs here. And you know the people who are in these triple C facilities anywhere, for the most part, are people who are there who are waiting pending disposition or pending a trial. So these individuals are people who essentially can't afford bail. And then we're of course cramming them together, overcrowding these facilities, which makes that spread a lot more probable. And in the midst of COVID, we actually, on the west side of the Big Island, we lost all of our uh, pretrial diversion. Um, and that's because of staffing problems. So in the world of corrections, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So we really can't build out a lot of these robust public health programs unless we're really relying on the public health system and getting buy-in from um, the Department of Human Services and the Department of Health really to address and tackle the, the challenges that we face inside the incarcer these incarceration settings um, by looking at them through the lens of public health. And unfortunately, we just haven't been able to do that. And things are just getting worse during COVID because of things like these shortages and the loss of our intake service center here on the west side of the island, which means anyone who might be appropriate for a mental health diversion is unable to be diverted because they just don't have the people to screen them or to manage the cases. Do you think that the solution to the type of overcrowding that we're seeing is a larger facility? Definitely not. A, a larger facility doesn't do anything besides put more beds in and much like in the field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. And that's sort of the problem that we have with the way that we think about jails right now. But I think that there's a really important caveat that we should mention when we're talking about these design capacities and operational capacities. So operational capacities means, you know, we've been able to tweak X, Y, and Z, change one room into another room, which may means that there's more beds something called the fishbowl in HCCC ended up allowing them to have more beds uh, inside the facility. But Hawaii created something called the Correctional Oversight Commission. And part of what the Correctional Oversight Commission was tasked with doing was to evaluate the way in which that the, um, uh, to evaluate the, the, the capacity of each of these facilities. So the Oversight Commission actually spent quite a bit of time looking into what the CDC recommended for inside of jails and prisons in order to try and make sure that the facilities here would be in alignment with the CDC. They came up with a number that was far below uh, the number of beds that were under the design capacity or the operating capacity. And that's simply because no jails were created with thinking about an infectious, a highly infectious disease like COVID. Unfortunately though, you know, DPS, the Department of Public Safety kind of has their hands tied because how in the world are they going to figure out how to, how to get the number of people inside these facilities down to, um, down to the capacity that was recommended by the, um, recommended by the Correctional Oversight Commission based on the CDC's guidelines, um, especially without really the, the cross silo support that's necessary to do decarceration in a way that allows people to um, to, to find a place in the community and be supported in the community like they need to be. And like I said, if you build it, they will come and we'll find ourselves once again at these operating capacities and we'll find ourselves once again saying, oh, we need more beds in order to do something with, with folks here. 
And so until we really start creating a robust system for diversion and for supporting people, the criminal legal system will continue to be what we expect to, to deal with these really intractable problems that we have a hard time facing. That was Mayor Mitch Roth and Dan Mistak with the Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services discussing the conditions in our prisons and jailhouses during the pandemic. This morning, we continue to talk rail. We were out at the last in-person Community Day open house of the Halaulani Rail Station in Leeward, Oahu. It was almost a year and a half ago. Take a listen to what people talked about at the time. Gina De La Cruz came in from Pearl City and was looking forward to the day that she could get on the train. You're out here with your family, anxious to see what anxious it looks to like? See, yes, yes, to see how it's going to run and just more information on what, how it's going to be. Yes. I mean, you've been watching this thing take shape with the guideways. We want to see what our money paid for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And and so, have you taken a train before? Um, yes, I actually did in Japan and and Vegas. But yes, uh, I I just want to see how it is. You know, now I work in Waipahu, so it wouldn't work for me. But I used to use the regular transit before traveling from Waianae to town. So you know, I'll probably use it. You know to get by if I want to go out to town one day. I'll see it. Yeah, yeah. I'm anxious. And Fred Baranta has two children, but between childcare and his work in town, he says the rail may be tricky for him to use. So when do you think you might use it? Probably for recreation. You know, like if, if there's like new age games, football games, you know, this would be perfect. We wouldn't have to worry about traffic, parking, going to be the designated driver, <laughs> you know, you just hop on the train and go to the game, hop back on and yeah. go home. So uh, what do you think so far? It's an upgrade for the city. I mean, it's, it's, it's a long time coming for, for the city to have other transportation than just the, than just the bus system. It's a great, great addition. They, they should have done this long time ago. <laughs> and Harry Louise has lived on Oahu for most of his life, and the only train he's been on is the Pearl Ridge monorail. So now where do you live, and do you think they'll take this train? Oh, yeah, definitely. Pearl City, to Vegas. <laughs> so uh, it should be fun. I'm going to go Pearl Ridge, you know. Just want to get out of the house and go somewhere. Nice. So you're really looking forward to it? Yeah, yeah, it should be awesome. It should be, should be good fun. The surfer boys can go, there's rats, you know. It should be kind of fun. <laughs> the pay was, I, I think the lady told me, I make 65 next month in March. So she said I have to go to the Middle Street place and then I can get one for, I think, $35. So I'll be a senior. So that'll be awesome. That's not bad. That's cheaper than running my car around or parking it at the airport. And so much has changed since February 8th, 2020. The price tag of the train is up to $12 billion, and the completion date is pushed out to 2030. We reached out to State Representative Harry, uh, Henry Aquino, who grew up in the Waipahu area and whose constituents are the most likely to jump on the train when it begins service. Aquino is the House Transportation Chairman, and he's been watching the progress of the project with keen interest and talking with families in his district. They would like to see the project move forward. They'd like to see the project go all the way the full 20 miles. However, you know, looking at the price tag, looking at the ongoing concerns with, you know, just the construction infrastructure, the cost overruns, I mean, these are real things. However, you know, there are, you know, residents that I've talked to that would really like to see the interim service start just so that they can see, you know, how it's going to be. You know, it's really like test driving a vehicle, really, for the first time. You know, looking at the, um, the features, you know, the experience of it. You know, I think there are people who are looking forward to that as well, whenever that may be. I know that there were some folks that were interested in at least getting the jump to the airport mm-hmm. so they could take trips and sure. leave their car at home. Yes, you know, there's a good, healthy amount of people that would like to see the interim service start. Know, whether it be from Kapolei to Aloha Stadium or to the airport or to Middle Street someday. So, you know, I think there are people who are just looking at the value. You know, certainly there are uh, families out there, residents, who have shared that, hey, we want to see what we paid for. I mean, that's absolutely correct. That's the reason why I feel that as long as we can safely, the city can safely put out the project for interim service, I think it'll be 
um, a good thing, a positive thing, so that people can really see how it operates and how it could be incorporated into their lives. If there are people that want rail to be paused at Middle Street, you know, it may not get people to the job centers. Yes. And, you know, I think that that's incumbent now on, you know, the city, mainly with DTS. If there is a pause at Middle Street, how can we, you know, really incorporate a multimodal system? How do we incorporate, you know, the buses, other uh, modes of transportation that can take people to and from the stopping point, wherever that may be? I think that needs to be further vetted. I know that, you know, Hart and the city, they're looking at a matrix of different possible options. And I think that is, uh, that's very much worth looking at. And I think whatever is decided, you know, whether it stops short of Ala Moana, which, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking about, um, how do we incorporate and make this a true multimodal system? Yeah, how do we get people to UH? How do we get people to Waikiki? Absolutely. I mean, because right now I don't think the system, you know, the city bus system and other modes of transportation, they're not really equipped or that hasn't been planned out yet. So if it does stop short of Ala Moana, let's say Middle Street downtown, I mean, really, how do we incorporate all these different options that are available to residents to get them to where they need to go. You know, we did talk to uh, City Councilman Calvin Say, you know, former House Speaker. He is just calling for more conversations around the financing of rail. And he says right now, you know, the state lawmakers have really kind of hamstrung the city and heart. Do you agree with that? Or I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, there's still some time to see, um, you know, with the GET and the TAT revenue collections, um, how that goes. I mean, obviously, the last year, year and a half with the pandemic has really affected collections. But I think moving forward, there's there's time uh, for more revenue to come in. But I think ultimately, uh, the city needs to determine where and how far they want to go. I think we can have a conversation about this in the future, you know, after we see interim service start and just ongoing things that need to be addressed mainly not just cost, but, you know, the, the infrastructure concerns that have come up recently. You know, I think some of those questions need to be answered before we consider any type of discussion regarding uh, revenue enhancement. It is discouraging when you hear the problems that they've had with the wheels and the tracks, and uh, now there's an issue that has come up with the birds nesting, and, you know, they don't have a maintenance budget really built in just yet. Yes, yes, and, you know, I, I really think you know, again, um, you know, and to the credit of um, the current Heart CEO, you know, she has mentioned you know, a lot of these problems and, you know, just really being uh, more transparent regarding some of the concerns and issues that have been ongoing. So, you know, credit to her. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you put it, you know, right on the um, head there that, you know, a lot of these things need to be addressed before we start considering any type of furtherance of uh, revenue collection. I mean, right now, it's a very difficult you know, ask to me. You know, we're starting to see the rebound with the tourists, so hopefully we'll get more uh, revenues in our tax coffers. But your support of rail, though, at this point, hasn't really wavered, even though the price tag's going up. I mean, I've always been a supporter of the project. I mean, obviously the concerns regarding cost, construction, you know, just the, you know, the integrity of the infrastructure regarding certain things, and you have mentioned the wheels, and that's, that's one of them. You know, I think these concerns um, need to be further vetted and discussed. I mean, really, where does the city, where does Hart really want to go at this point? And, you know, listening to our communities is probably the best option moving forward. Again, because it's you know, such a big infrastructure project that uh, would truly benefit residents um, and visitors alike, that we need to take a look at every concern, every issue, you know, moving forward. I think we owe it to the communities that we serve. The west side certainly needs an alternative route to get into town. It's a tough drive, you know, in the morning and the afternoons every day. Yes, it is. You know, certainly um, the last uh, year, year and a half, you know, things have on a daily basis. It's not as congested, but it, there's still congestion there, you know, especially in certain corridors along the H1 and H2. You know, it's, it's just been you know, a tough commute for for a lot of our residents. And yes, we, you know, we, we do need options, different alternatives and different modes. Um, 
you know, I think uh, um, if there's any silver lining to um, what happened, you know, with the pandemic, you know, you have residents who are able to work from home or were able to, you know, adjust, uh, make adjustments to their schedules, you know, so that, you know, they could work from home and probably spend more time with loved ones. So, you know, if there's any silver lining to what has happened to our communities uh, regarding COVID, I mean, that's one. But yeah, certainly we still face congestion, uh, whether you're coming from the west side or central Oahu. And going back uh, for the PM commute, you know, it's it's always been a very uh, difficult fact of life for a lot of us. And now with the operational date pushed off even uh, further down the road, yeah. I mean, I, I just worry about how much a ticket's going to cost to ride it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, certainly, I mean, that that's something that has come up numerous times with uh, with residents, families, um, particularly in the Waipahu area and you know, there are those who um, who are still on the fence regarding the project, and they're trying to see, you know, how and or if this can be incorporated into their daily lives. Um, you know, I, I think based on what they know right now, there's still a lot of questions, and um, you know, we're trying to um, address some of those questions or to have those questions um, amplified, uh, so that uh, um, whatever case may be. You know, we talk about costs, we talk about um, the construction and, Mm -hmm. you know, just the overruns and everything else. I mean, you know, all these uh, concerns need to be addressed at some point so that we can give a better picture for the residents of our communities. Have you had a chance to go out to visit the stations in those community days? Uh, Yes, I have. Um, Maybe not on those community days, but I've gone for site visit. I visited uh, both of the stations um, in Waipahu. I have gone to the the Ruck out at uh, LCC. Uh, several times, and you know, um, you know, had you know several visits uh, while the corridor was uh, being built uh, along uh, Kamehameha Highway as well as Farrington Highway. You know, I think people are just waiting to see, you know, whether they're excited about it or, you know, overly concerned mm-hmm. about the project and how it's been you know, um, done at this point. Yeah. I think you know, there, there's a lot of people that just want to see this happen. Once people get to see how the project moves and, you know, um, they can think about their own personal lives and how, you know, they can incorporate this into their lives or not, you know, I think, you know, we we owe it to people to to provide a product uh, that they can choose to utilize or not. That was State Representative Henry Aquino sharing his thoughts about the rising price tag of our rail system and the dilemma of how we are going to pay for it as the project's completion is now slipping further down the road. Aquino represents District 38, which covers all of Waipahu, and he is also the chair of the House Transportation Committee. From the price of rail to the price of food, that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So your headline, $9 for a loaf of bread. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, it is It is a true thing. And um, uh, to clarify, you know, we're not necessarily talking about a big fancy loaf of bread. This is kind of the uh, uh, bread in a... You know, loaf of bread in a in a regular uh, cellophane package on the shelves with all the other bread. So this is, um, it's a thing. Um, that's the price for some of at some of these stores for bread. Yeah. So why are we seeing these grocery prices spike? Yeah. Well, that's a that's the question we wanted to explore, and um, the answer seems to be complicated. Of course, every a lot of people want to say, "Oh, this is all because of stimulus money. People have more money, and and it's uh, it, it's creating an inflationary environment." Um, and maybe that's a part of it. But what we're really seeing, and from talking to uh, uh, food producers, uh, people actually local people who do it, reading about the national trends, everything else, is that it, they're bottlenecks throughout the system, um, the whole supply chain um, when it comes to producing food. So packaging is more expensive. Yes, maybe some of the commodities are up. Uh, transportation costs, energy, labor, all of these things that go into making uh, making things is just has gone up and this is 
pushing, putting pressure on the price. So the consumer price index, um, I mean, what do the economists have to say about it? Well, right. So we have the consumer price index, which is the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, uh, the Federal Bureau, uh, that looks at these things. And Hawaii, in general, is not up. People probably heard the national CPI for uh, May, I'm sorry, for April, which was released in May, was up 4.2%, more than economists expected. It created worries about inflation. Here in Hawaii, the latest numbers we have are only for the first quarter. That's 1.5%, not nearly like the federal numbers. The, the problem is you look at this component, and we have the component uh, more recently, uh, or a more recent uh, 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 information on, on that. That's from April, um, it's gone up 12% since the beginning of the pandemic for food at home, which is basically groceries. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if the uh, restaurant prices will start to creep up too. Well, right. So far, not as much as the food at home category from what we've seen. Um, The other question is, is this going to be prolonged? Are we really going to see inflation uh, as we have in the past? Uh, the answer is, like we spoke to Carl Bonham, local economist from University of Hawaii. Um, he says no, he does not see that. And more importantly, the Federal Reserve um, is not really betting on that. The Fed is betting that things are going to level off and it will not raise interest rates. You know, the it, problem with raising interest rates is that it can slow down the economy And if done too much too soon can cause a crash landing, everything slows down too fast, interest rates are up, it's impossible to borrow money or expensive to, and we have a recession. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, we we have the CPI uh, numbers that come out from the Labor Department, but uh, almost a year ago, exactly, I had to take part in a, uh, a survey about the Consumer Price Index and it was the Census Bureau that was actually conducting it. And I was a little um, suspicious at first. But, uh, yeah, it turns out that, that that's who conducts that uh, consumer price index. And uh, so we'll be curious to see if, they will, if they're doing another round uh, this month and see what it says. Right. We should know soon. Um, we'll know a little bit more. And by June, we'll know the big picture for Hawaii for uh, the CPI. Okay, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed that this spike doesn't continue. <laughs> uh, but thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Join HPR Saturday, June 19th, when the lush sounds of Intoxica return to the Atherton studio. It's a live stream performance of the Exotica Trio, bringing you the sweet, atmospheric sounds of 1950s Oahu. Make a batch of Mai Tais and enjoy the magic of the Atherton studio in your living room. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Hula Grill Kaanapali and Duke's Beach House on Maui. You know, we began the week talking about the unexpected rebound in our visitor industry, and we touched on regenerative tourism with the State Parks Administrator, Kirk Cottrell. It was the subject also of a recent conference. HPR reporter Ku Vahirishi was tracking that. She joined us in studio this morning to talk about it. Hi. Aloha, Catherine. I recently went to this uh, virtual gathering of sorts uh, hosted by the Native Hawaiian uh, Hospitality Association, uh, which brought together Native Hawaiian cultural practitioners, community leaders, but also industry experts and academics to discuss this topic, which, as you said, is uh, ever more critical right now as tourists and visitors begin uh, to return to Hawaii. But regenerative tourism, just as a, a very simple definition, is basically a model of tourism where the benefits of it outweigh the cost, right? So it gives back more more than it takes. 
And uh, part of that conversation is driven by the fact that tourism globally right now is so competitive. Hawaii is not the only one trying to uh, win back uh, tourists and visitors, uh, but also, um, you know, according to John DeFries, the president and CEO uh, of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, that is the reason, one of the reasons why uh, thinking of a new model f- of tourism for Hawaii is so important and something unique to Hawaii because right now we also need the buy-in and we also have to convince locals or kama'aina that uh, the tourism industry can be something that benefits the quality of life here and doesn't just create traffic on Hana Highway or um, uh, kind of busy up the Waikiki beaches. Uh, but we also got a chance to talk to uh, an internationally renowned tourism a scholar who studied regener- regenerative tourism uh, for years. Uh, her name is Pauline Sheldon, and she's a former dean up at the uh, UH Manoa School of uh, Tourism Industry Management. And she says there's, you know, there's a uh, a difference between because these these terms kind of get uh, thrown around so much: regenerative tourism and sustainable tourism. And so sustainable is basically keeping things as they are and making sure the negative impacts don't uh, overtake uh, or outweigh uh, the benefits. And regenerative is is basically an opportunity to continue uh, to uh, improve Hawaii's uh, as a destination. Right. So you don't want just people to come here and take from us. You want them to give back. You want them to be you know, mindful tourists and to leave the place better than when they first got here. Exactly. And some of uh, what the Hawaii Tourism Authority has already been uh, rolling out, such as the uh, Malama Hawaii campaign, which I think uh, happened about two weeks ago. Uh, Some of you may have seen that on your television sets, uh, videos that are are trying to connect uh, visitors to the local community in a deeper way. And so it talks about uh, aquaculture, Native Hawaiian fish ponds, right? And um, the idea of the ahupua'a system and sustainable practices. And then it invites the visitor to take part in that. So right now, uh, several hotels are participating in this program where you get a third night free or a fourth night free. And in exchange, you go and volunteer at a nonprofit to restore a fish pond uh, or um, perhaps work in in a taro patch. I was just looking uh, uh, online for a, a hotel and actually saw one where, yeah, they charge a fee and, and it's going to, I think, plant trees. Right, right. And so these ideas of, of making that connection a little uh, easier for visitors to take part in is part uh, of what that campaign is doing. And I know HTA is also working on uh, the destination area management plans, right? So getting the community involved in this process, which is a, a central component of that. But going back to Sheldon, uh, she says Hawaii is really poised and has all the components that are necessary to develop a model that's unique to Hawaii. Uh, here's Sheldon. The rest of the world does not have this richness right? They do not have this values-based culture upon which we can build a regenerative tourism model for Hawaii. The ideas of stewardship, activity for the greater good, collaboration over competition, community over self-interest, culture over commodity, and most importantly, well-being over profit. So I just wanted to point that out because the world is watching, as I've said before, we are on the brink of also being able to be a world leader in bringing these values forward to design regenerative tourism. Uh, All the values that she had listed in there, she says a a big part of it is that it's a values-based model, but also that it requires that mindset change, right? A shift in the way we look at tourism. And if you base this model on the values that she just listed, that's gonna imply a sort of redefining what it means to be successful in tourism. Okay, but the tourists are coming, so we got to hurry up and, <laughs> uh, you know, come up with this model and, and make it work, put it in place. It's a long-term commitment, really, more than something that'll be a quick fix, from what I understand. But yes, um, starting now would be would be a good idea. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. Yeah. We have been talking with HBR reporter Kuvehi Reishi. Find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Have you ever noticed those flocks of finches with bright red eye masks hanging out in grassy fields? Well, this week, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the tiny waxbill. Common, but very eye-catching. Here's your Manu Minute. The story of common waxbills is similar to that of many of our birds in the lowlands of Hawaii. Native to Africa, they were brought to Oahu as cage birds, where a few escaped and formed wild populations by the early 1970s. At only about 4 inches tall and weighing 8 or 9 grams, common waxbills are among the tiniest birds in the state. Both the males and females have a bright red eye mask and bright red-orange bills. The rest of their plumage is mainly grayish-brown, with fine black bars you can only see if you get up close. Like many of the finches imported to Hawaii, they mainly feed on grass seeds. If you're driving along the road and see a flock of tiny birds clinging to the tall stalks of grasses, there's a good chance that some of them are common waxbills, especially if you hear their song and it sounds like this. Waxbills were first spotted on Maui in the late 1990s on the Kona side of the Big Island in the early 2000s, and on the Hilo side just in the last four or five years. Now they're very common on both those islands, especially where there's tall grass, such as parks, open fields, and roadsides. They're a great example of how non-native bird species can quickly expand into unoccupied niches, especially in the lowlands, where we've lost most of our native bird species to introduce diseases. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. And special thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for today's field recordings. writer Annie Daly is back at home after a visit to the islands last month. The Big Island is a place she's been coming to for years. She writes about Hawaii and the concept of wellness. Daly traveled to six different countries, including Japan, Norway, as well as Jamaica, Brazil, and India, and includes their take on wellness. She wrote a book entitled Destination Wellness. We caught up with her as she touched back down in Brooklyn. Basically, what I did was I traveled to six different places around the world in search of less commercial well-being. And the whole idea for the book started when I was an editor at a top wellness magazine in New York. And as part of that job, I was just getting sent loads and loads of wellness products all the time. And I sort of became disillusioned with this idea that wellness is something you can buy because I knew deep down from all of my travels that wellness comes from within. And so I decided to set out on this journey and interview people who had different takes on well-being and approached it in a more holistic way. So much of it, and especially when it comes to indigenous cultures, is these ideas have been around for, for forever, and we've just gone so far away from them in this whole commercial direction with the wellness industry just blowing up, like it is a trillion dollar industry at this point. And when you look at this ancient indigenous wisdom from way back when, you see that it's really about getting back to the basics and following these simple practices and philosophies that people have been doing all along. So share with us what you, I guess, gleaned from your travels. So I think that was ultimately the main message is that from all of the six different places that I went to, I I studied, you know, one or two philosophies from each place. And the main common theme is that these practices are are quite basic and, you know, they don't involve shelling out tons of cash. For example, in Norway, I studied this philosophy called Friluftsliv. It's spelled F-R-I-L-U-F-P-S-L-I-V. And it translates 
to the outdoor life, the fresh air life. And it's it's all about this idea that that achieving genuine well-being can be as simple as going outside and connecting to nature. And it doesn't have to be going to this fancy class or, you know, buying the expensive lotions or anything. It can just be something as simple as walking to do your errands instead of driving in your car to do them if you can, or maybe suggesting having a picnic in the park or or at the beach for you guys instead of meeting up at an indoor restaurant. So it's not even like you have to go on this epic camping retreat to get this connection to nature. It's just about literally spending time outside. One of the things that I focused on in the Hawaii chapter in the book was this idea of nana ike kumu, which means getting back to, you know, your history and really understanding where you come from and, and knowing your story. I talked to somebody on Molokai who originally was the one who turned me on to that phrase because I was asking him, like, when I travel, I like to ask people how they define well-being. And he said, for me, wellness is all about knowing your story. And it's about knowing where you come from and honoring your ancestors and and understanding your place in the world and knowing that you know you're not floating on your own your own island you're a part of this much bigger community and i think that's a really beautiful concept to apply to wellness today because we can get so caught up in the moment and so many of these products that are marketed to us promise wellness in the future, they'll say, like, this product will change your life, you know, this will do this for you. And it's all about like this thing that will happen in the future. Whereas this idea of knowing your own story and honoring your past is saying, no, 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 we don't need to look to the future. We already have everything that we need right here. It's just about tapping into that, tapping into that intuition and that, you know, that that knowledge that we all have. Well, I find it interesting that you came here, I guess, seeking some refuge during this pandemic. Definitely. My travels for the book, actually, when I came to do research for the book, it was before the pandemic. And the timing of that was really quite crazy, actually, because I finished up the last trip for the book just weeks before lockdown. And so all of these lessons that I had learned doing this reporting, I was able to apply to my life during the pandemic when they were especially helpful because these were all such, you know, genuine philosophies that I was able to lean on. And so then now just recently coming back after the pandemic, it was it was really interesting to see. I think you guys have done such an amazing job handling the pandemic. And, you know, with with all the regulations coming in, it made me as a traveler, so happy to know that, you know, we, everybody has to test negative to come in and that we're not creating more problems and going to, you know, take up room in the hospitals. And it's, it's just really, it was wonderful to come and see that you guys are handling it so well. And it really just provided such a wonderful healing escape for me. I love the idea that, you know, you wear the mask, uh, for other people, and you yeah. ask that they wear the mask for you. I think that's such a, a Hawaiian concept, too. That's one of my favorite things about the concept of aloha in general is this realization that we're all connected and we're all in this together, and that is such a beautiful idea to keep in mind during the pandemic and one that makes me really sad when I see these you know, anti-maskers who say, like, oh, you know, I don't need it for me. And my whole thing is, yeah, but it's not just about you. Like we're all connected. You're wearing it for other people. This is aloha. This is what life is all about is, is recognizing that we're all connected. So it's really wonderful to see all of the aloha coming through in that way. What did you learn from India? Because they're having a terrible time now with the virus you know, and, and oh you my just feel gosh, for them. I know. It's so, my husband is actually from there and his family had COVID. Luckily, they're okay, but it was so scary for a little bit there. And it just breaks my heart to see what's going on there. What I focused on in India in particular in the book was Ayurveda, which is the 5,000 year old philosophy of holistic healing. And Ayurveda, there's 
there's so much about the philosophy that helped me out during lockdown. But one of my favorite concepts from from that is this idea of developing a daily routine. And in Ayurveda, they're they're very particular about the idea that that doing the same thing in the morning and at night isn't necessarily to enhance your productivity like we often say that it is here in the U.S., but it's actually to help you maintain your health so that it's very preventative. And the whole idea is that having a routine will help you stay healthy so that you never get to a dangerous place. And I love that idea, too, because I think here in the U.S., we tend to be a Band-Aid nation and we tend to really only go to the doctor when we're sick. And I love the idea in India that that if you practice Ayurveda and you practice these holistic philosophies that that maintenance and prevention is as important as healing yourself when you're actually sick. Well, you know, it is interesting, too, that you traveled to Japan, you know, where they're going through an outbreak now, and then Brazil, which also has its challenges. I, I know. It's like I somehow seem to choose the countries that are really not not doing that well right now, and... It makes me so sad to read the news knowing that I was there just before all of this happened, and I I was fortunate enough to have such a wonderful experience there. And I'm just really hoping and praying for everybody that I met along the way that it will work out. That was Annie Daly, author of the new book, Destination Wellness. She has worked for and written for a number of publications like Condé Nast Traveler and Travel and Leisure. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we revisit a number of stories around a Pacific Island staple, ulu. Breadfruit may be out of season, but you might be able to find it in your grocer's freezer. Got an idea for us? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And email works, too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you've heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.